Hey everyone, thank you for coming. I know it's been a pretty long week here in Vegas. My name is Mauro Kleider. I'm a principal product manager with Amazon Redshift. And today with me, we have Jason from Intuit, and we will together present what I hope to be a pretty in interesting and helpful session for you. I will start by talking about Redshift as a service, how it plays a, a big role in our database analytic platform, uh, how our customers are using it, what are the benefits that they see, and I will talk more about the features that have been released very recently, and the features, this is the most exciting part, that are about to be released very soon. After that, Jason will take it over and we'll talk about Intuit's migration to the cloud and specifically Amazon Redshift. He will share best practices, the insights that they gain, and the next steps as they integrate more with the data lake. Let's get started. By the show of hands, so I can tune myself to you, how many of you are currently using Amazon Redshift? Oh, that's nice, quite a few. So, I would uh, recommend, uh, for those of you who are not currently using Redshift, uh, to take a look at the additional resources that you have. I did put some slides in this session to make it uh, useful for you as well. And for those of you who are using Amazon Redshift, thank you. Uh, I incorporated a lot of uh, information about features that are going to be released very soon, and I hope that you can find them useful. Let's get started. So. This slide, and I appreciate the fact that it's a pretty loaded slide, tells the story about using the right tool for the right task. At the center of it, you can see Amazon Redshift, our data warehouse. And on the sides, up and down, you can basically see many more services that you can use for the right use case at the right time and only pay for what you use. So other than Redshift, that plays a big part in our analytic ecosystem, you can see databases like graph databases on the left-hand side, and you can see the newly announced blockchain services on the right-hand side. But the story really begins from moving your data from your traditional data warehouse or from your on-prem systems to the cloud. And we have several services to help you do that very easily. First is the AWS database migration service that helps you migrate pretty much within a click of a button to the cloud. You can also ship your data you can stream it to AWS. And then with a newly announced feature and services like the AWS Lake Formation, you can build your data lake within days and get all the security and compliance functionality that you care about with no additional effort. Most of our customers adopt the data lake. And the reason why it is so powerful is that they can store all of their data in S3 in a very cost-effective and durable fashion and basically use any of the services that you see on top against the data to get the insights that they care about. At the very top of this slide, you can see several services that can help you visualize, apply machine learning, and other applications on your data to get even more value. And basically what I would like to convey from this slide is that you use the right tool for the right job, and all of them play very nicely with each other which is not really the case with a traditional data warehouse that is really confined to the system that you designed back then. I want to share more details and learnings from our conversation with customers and why they consider migrating to the cloud and specifically to Redshift. When we talk with customers, we learn that there is actually more data than people think. And when you think about it, when you design your system, you really design it to last for about 15 years because more projects are going to come, and you don't want to change your system every now and then. So you make kind of an important decision. And when we talk with customers, we learn that their size of data analyze grows about 10x every five years. So this simple math gets you the insight that your data is going to grow about three orders of magnitude, 1,000x in the next 15 years. And the current traditional system, I would say, are not designed and optimized to support these explosive data sets, right? And just think about it from a capacity standpoint. No one would like to pay for capacity for the next coming years unless it's been actually used. And this is one of the reasons why customers consider migrating to the cloud. But there is more to it. There are actually more data types, and more data types are being added faster than ever before. And some of the open file formats that you see here on the slide, like Parquet and ORC and others, 
uh, were not really part of the initial design of traditional data, data warehouse systems. And customers want to be able to analyze these data sets seamlessly with their existing tools. They also want to apply different applications to use different engines to analyze data. You can imagine that some data science teams use Hadoop and others use uh, specifically Spark or machine learning, and they want to collaborate on the same data set. They, wanna, they don't want to be locked to a specific engine that holds their data and they cannot use anything else. This is why they make this decision to modernize their data warehouse. And what it really means is that they want to be able to provide all of their users with the ability to make sense of their data, to query their data at any scale in any format without any limitations. They want to provide their end users with the ability to get the fastest time to insight because it means that they can serve their customers better. It means that they can remain competitive and introduce new services and features for their customers. Most importantly, they want their data warehouse to be as easy to use as possible so they can focus on their data, on their customers, and not on the operations that they care a whole lot about, like backups, automated patching, but they're not really adding any differentiated business value. And lastly, I want to point out the importance of the data lake that enables customers to integrate with a much broader and deeper ecosystem of services to get the value out of their data. Amazon Redshift does just that. It's a fully managed service that is fast, simple, and cost-effective, and operates on data within the cluster and in the data lake in open file formats. It provides the fastest query performance at unlimited scale. You can onboard as many users as you'd like that would query the system at the same time with no limitations. You can integrate with the data lake with a feature that we introduced last year called Redshift Spectrum that has been widely adopted. And it is also important and note saying that it is at less than one-tenth of the cost of traditional solutions. This is important from uh, two viewpoints. The first is that you can do more within your budget and you can onboard new use cases. The second one is that you can experiment really easily. We provide two months of free usage under our free trial. And beyond that, you can use Redshift at pretty much 25 cents an hour just to see if your use case makes sense, if you want to continue to use it, and that's it. Many of the customers that we work with make this decision to work with Redshift and to migrate to Redshift because it provides these benefits to them. And on this slide, you can see customers coming with different use cases, different size companies, different geographies. It can be a three-person startup, just as an example, working to enhance their mobile application or their gaming a functionality, doing some A-B testing with Redshift, or it can be the largest telecommunication company in Japan, Entity Docomo, that operates on many tens of petabytes. You will also hear from Jason about Intuit's decision-making and why they chose to move to Amazon Redshift. On this slide, you see the many vendors that we work with. And we respect the investment that you've made in these vendors to a transfer your data, ETL, to visualize it and the system integrators that you've been working with. And we worked with them to certify them specifically with Amazon Redshift, specifically with the functionality that we've been releasing. And I will talk about it a bit more. If you see any vendor on this slide that you'd like us to connect you with, we'd love to. And if you see a, your vendors, basically you don't see them on this slide, I would love to learn and work with them to certify them to ease your migration to the cloud. When we talk with customers, we learn that the things that matter the most to them are these four. Essentially, they want to be able to query the system and get the best speed, right? the best query throughput. They want it to be simple, which is what we talked about in terms of managed service taking care of all the operations that don't add any value to your business. They want the system to scale as they need to today and in the future. And they rely on Amazon Redshift to be secure and meet their compliance requirements so they, their data and their trust with their customers can, can, can remain uh, secure. I would like to dig uh, into each of these verticals and talk more about the stuff 
that we've been doing, the features that we've been releasing, and most interestingly, the features that we are about to release very soon. As you can see on this slide, there are way more features that I could have packed in a single slide. And the truth behind it is that every other week, we pretty much release new software with new feature and enhancements. And what it means is that you get them automatically to your cluster with no additional effort on your end, no additional cost, and you can use them right away. And these features include some significant performance gains. And when you look at it over the course of, let's say, six months, you can see that they add up to a pretty significant improvement, something that is not quite common with traditional data warehouses. You can see that with this chart, the query throughput actually went up 3.5x over the course of six months, which is quite impressive. And the way for us to introduce these features is to think through the use cases of our customers, introduce new hardware that supports these use cases, like the new node types that we introduced last year, a new caching mechanism that provides sub-second response time, and many other features that make Redshift even faster at no additional cost. I would like to elaborate on some of these features. Before I do that, I just want to uh, share with you how we prioritize developing these features and deploying them at scale to all of our customers. We basically get a fleet-wide dashboard that tells us what our customers at large are doing with the system. And what you can see here is that on the uh, top charts, customers are querying the system with read queries, which makes a lot of sense, something that was happening before with traditional solutions. But you can also see that they write and they ingest data a whole lot more, and they operate on fresh data, not like before, when you had some batch operation that would have taken place like once a day, and the data was not as fresh. Here with Redshift, you basically stream data. It can be very frequent. And then you operate. Your end users get the answers that they care about very fast on the actual relevant data. Cookpad, which is the largest recipe a company in the world, serving over 100 million customers with over 260 million recipes, saw some significant improvements. And this is what we see across our fleet with the commit performance that I just talked about. What they were able to see is about 5x improvement that translated into some substantial core performance improvements. And the nice thing about it is that they haven't done anything on their end to realize this benefit. It was just deployed to their cluster over the course of time to make it more performant. Edmonds, which provides detailed, up-to-date vehicle information to many millions of customers in the US, saw a similar performance improvement when we introduce result caching. It's a feature that serves repeat queries from the memory of the leader node under one second. This frees up the Redshift cluster to deal with additional analytics while serving dashboard queries really fast, I mean, below one second. I would like to switch gears a bit and talk about new features. One is already available for you, and one is in preview. And they are going to enable you to process queries even faster with Amazon Redshift to scale it when you need and onboard more users and queries when you want to. The first one is a, the Redshift Elastic Resize, which essentially enables you to scale your cluster up or down when you need to, to get the additional resources, for example, to serve a, a more demanding workload queries. It can be an ETL pipeline that needs more uh, storage. And when you need to scale down to save costs to go back to the steady state capacity, you can also do this, do this in, in minutes, which is quite impressive. There is only one thing that you need to do, which is to go and let us know that you want to resize the cluster, and we handle the rest. We distribute the data, we add the additional nodes on your behalf, and we get you the cluster uh, to perform the, the execution of your queries at no uh, additional effort on your end. The other feature that I'm very excited about is Redshift Concurrency Scaling. This feature enables you to serve more users and more queries with no additional effort on your end. What we do under the covers is to add the concurrency scaling clusters that you see on the right-hand side. When we identify increased workload, some queries that are experiencing some wait time, we bring these clusters in. These clusters are able to read your latest data in the backup and in cluster 
using a massively scalable compute layer and a pretty sophisticated caching layer that helps you get the performance that you care about from any of these clusters. And what it means for you is that the unpredictable workload that comes from different teams that you onboard in the system it can now be served with no wait time, providing your end users with consistently fast performance that you care about. The other nice thing about this feature that I really like is that it is actually free for the majority of our customers, 97% to be precise. So the way that it works is that we provide you with one hour of concurrency scaling credits that will cover the majority of our customers using this feature. And the reason for this is that Redshift is already very fast, but there are some times during the day where there is some peak workload. Imagine like Monday 9 a.m. when everyone is doing reporting, right? And during these times, we're able to add capacity to your cluster to serve these queries so they don't wait to provide you the performance that you care about. And the rest is just handled with your Redshift cluster. And as you see on the right-hand side, you can see the scaling of the query throughput with the Redshift concurrency scaling feature, and it scales quite nicely. Moving to simplicity, because it's also important to enable more end users on your end to query the system with the query editor that we released. It is also important to make sure that you can upgrade to the newest node types at no additional cost, and many other improvements that, that, that we introduced and I would like to talk about. The first one, as I called out, is the Redshift Query Editor. And the nice thing about it is that you can connect, a, go, go to the AWS Management Console, and with no setup, with no setup of applications or drivers, query your data right away. Imagine a new administrator or a new user that needs immediate SQL access, but they don't have the setup for that. They just log in to the AWS Management Console, and they can query their cluster right away. The other features have to do with the automation of the tasks that make your Redshift cluster even more performant. So as you can see here on the screen, we, we've been automating the analyze and vacuum commands to make sure that you can focus on your data while we take care of the rest of the operations, similar to the way that we run automated backups for you. And we automated many other functionalities that you care about but don't really add business value. We are moving towards zero maintenance on your end. The system will automatically tune itself, optimize itself to make sure that you get the best out of your Redshift cluster at no additional cost. With that said, I want to talk a bit about what we do to make sure that the system continues to scale and supports more use, ca more use cases on your end. Uh, this has to do with our ability to query data in your data lake in Amazon S3. This has to do with more regions that we support, with more file formats, open file formats like Parquet and ORC, and with more complex data types, nested data types like nested JSON. And this slide explains a bit more about what Redshift Spectrum is capable of. Redshift Spectrum enables you to query data directly in S3 with no additional effort. You basically use the same BI tool that you're used to, the same SQL. You benefit from the same security that you have with Redshift, the same compliance. And what you can do is to query data in your cluster and in your lake. You can actually span a view across data in cluster and in your lake. So from the application standpoint or from user standpoint, the access is seamless. And the top two use cases that we see for Spectrum are to query very hot data, data just arrived in S3, and you don't want to spend time loading it. The other use case is customers store all of their data for historical, regulatory reasons sometimes in S3, and they want to be able to access it only when they need to. They don't want to store it in, in cluster so they can get access to all of their data but only work with the most frequently accessed data in their cluster. And now with two features that I want to uh, basically explain a bit more about, we're making this integration with the data lake even, even more seamless. The first feature is the ability to unload data in optimized file format, Parquet. As you know, one of the 
things that we share with our customers is, is, is the best practice of using open file format so they can operate on it with different systems. But more than that, we recommend that they use partitioning, and we recommend that they use compression to make sure that we scan only data that we need in a compressed fashion so we get the performance and cost efficiencies that come with it. Now, we're making this easier by unloading data in the optimized file format for you to query with Spectrum and other systems. More than that, we're making the Spectrum performance even faster by accelerating specific requests that are broken down from a query on your behalf. So we will identify, when this feature is released, we'll identify the specific requests that can benefit from it and accelerate them so your queries will run much faster. And by much faster, I mean some customer that evaluated this feature, included into it, shared with us that they saw anywhere between 6 to 10x improvement for the queries that benefit from this feature. Quite impressive. A bit about the scale of Redshift with a spectrum, a feature of, of the service. Here you see a pretty a interesting query that represents a typical workload a, that we see day to day. It's a complex query that includes several tables, about four tables, eight filters, several joins. So it's not a trivial query to run. But the more interesting thing to see here is that we execute this query against an exabyte size data set. And we get a result in less than three minutes. Now, I, I appreciate the fact that not many of our customers have exabyte data sets. But this makes it even more interesting when you think about the petabytes and terabytes that we've been working with at these scales for many years. And this is how we make sure that Redshift is there to support your future growth as well. Security, as I mentioned, is built in in everything that we do, in every feature that we release. We enable you, at no additional cost, to encrypt your data end-to-end -end and benefit from the certifications and for the benefit of, of meeting your regula reg regulatory requirements at no additional cost. And Jason will talk more about what Intuit has been doing with this support to enable the migration from their on-prem system to the cloud. I want to conclude my uh, section by talking a bit more about the power of the data lake. All of these features that I talk about and the connectivity with the data lake, the connectivity of Amazon S3, enables our customers to analyze all of their data, whether it's terabytes and even out to exabytes. They can do so in a secure fashion and run any analytical engine that they have in mind against open file format and benefit from the cost efficiencies and durability of S3 as the mechanism that stores all of their data. New services are emerging, and new technologies are coming all the time, and it's quite helpful that you can leverage open file formats to easily integrate them and enable your end users to get more value out of your data. This is a recap slide that presents the features that we talk about. It is also presenting the story and decision-making for many of our customers that choose to migrate from their traditional data warehouse to Amazon Redshift. This is because Redshift is getting faster with this feature, especially the features that enable you to scale your clusters and support more users current the system at the same time with concurrency scaling. It is about the current scale of Redshift and the feature that enables you to unload data in optimized file format as part of the lake. And it is about the simplicity that is baked into the service that enables you to query it, enables you to enjoy from the automated uh, tasks that we perform on your behalf. And it is also about the security that comes as part of other services that were just announced this week. For example, the AWS Lake Formation that enables you to set up your data lake in days in the secure fashion that you care about. I will now hand it over to Jason from Intuit to talk about their migration to the cloud, specifically to Amazon Redshift, and the benefits that they've seen. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mauer. Okay. Thanks, Mauer. Good coming through here. I'm uh, Jason Rhodes. I'm here on behalf of Intuit. Um, Intuit's a little unique in that a lot of people have heard of our products, but maybe haven't heard of uh, Intuit as a company. So just to take you through our products real quick, um, 
QuickBooks is uh, in for use uh, by uh, small businesses, self-employed people to help them get their books done at the end of the month. Uh, ProConnect is our uh, tax offering for uh, CPAs and tax professionals. Uh, Mint is a, a product to, to be used for managing individual personal finances. But the product I think uh, people are most familiar with is TurboTax. And uh, just out of curiosity here, uh, how many uh, folks in the audience filed their taxes with TurboTax this year? Oh, that's good. That's good. Okay, now, view. How many? How many did it online, like in a browser or through a mobile app, maybe? Okay, good. And and how many waited until the very last day? Okay, good. Good. I'm not alone. Okay, good. Well, uh, those of us that filed late in the season were part of a, a real interesting milestone for Intuit, and and that was that for the first time ever, uh, Intuit served that entire experience, and actually the last two days of the tax season are our busiest, uh, completely out of AWS. So. Uh, it, it was a big milestone for us. It's taken years to get here, but uh, we finally had the confidence to kind of cut the cord and, uh, and run entirely out of Amazon. So, so thanks to everybody who, who used TurboTax and uh, was part of that milestone. And Redshift was a big part of making that happen. And uh, I'll take you through uh, how we got there and, and the part it played. But first, a little bit of history about uh, Intuit. We're, uh, unlike uh, some of these uh, newer companies that were sort of born in the cloud, uh, Intuit was born in the 80s, uh, the original version of uh, into its first product, Quicken, was, was written for MS-DOS. Uh, it had to be rewritten later for, uh, for Windows and then 32-bit Windows. And uh, eventually, this, this web thing came along, and um, people started filing their taxes online. Uh, that, that sort of, you know, people weren't so sure about it at first. But over time, it's, it's become more and more commonplace. People are doing their banking online and other things online. And uh, confidence in, in Intuit as a company and sort of important online experiences like that has grown. So, um, today, most of our customers uh, do their taxes online. And also on the QuickBooks side, uh, the online side of that is also uh, our, our strongest growing area. So um, as, that, as that change has occurred, um, particularly uh, on the online side, what that's meant for us as a company, in order to sort of serve all those people concurrently, uh, again, if you think about tax, We've got a ton of people doing their taxes the last couple days of the year and a big plateau you know, when, when the IRS opens their doors early in the season. Uh, but most of the rest of the year, you know, that infrastructure isn't doing anything. So we were suffering really badly from the traditional sort of data center problem of having to build to, your, to manage your sort of peak capacity, but then be sitting on it most of the time. Uh, and so you know, for tax, it was sort of that annual cycle. Uh, but also on the, the QuickBooks side, those products are subject to you know, people run payroll every two weeks or they close the books at the end of the month. But uh, other than that, you know, things tend to be uh, not, very, not very taxed. So um, it was four years ago here at reInvent, our, our CTO, Taylor Stansbury, uh, announced that Intuit was going all in with Amazon. And uh, you know, we've been on that journey since that time. And uh, you know, partially due to that successful uh, tax season we had this year uh, and just all the success we've had getting things migrated, uh, we actually sold our data center up in Quincy, Washington, next door to Yahoo and Microsoft. Um, so we're, we're, really, we're really in with, uh, with Amazon. So, so how did, what did Redshift have to do with that, and how, how, is it, how are we continuing to uh, use it? So uh, the group I'm part of uh, in the old days used to help into and understand what was happening in its data center, so capacity planning, um, CMDB type things, just the, the hosting operations of the company. And as we've moved out of the data center, we still have some stuff there. We're about 70% moved. But um, as we've, our usage of Amazon has grown, um, there's been a, becoming a lot more interest in, in what's going on in there, what's it costing us, what are people doing. Uh, and so our, our primary data source is actually uh, our bill. Um, you guys may be familiar. Uh, every Amazon customer gets a bill. Uh, it's called the cost and usage report, or the CUR for short. Um, our CUR happens to be really, really big. Um, a normal one might be a few million rows. Uh, our CUR is in the billions of rows. Uh, and that's a, that's a, it's a thing we get delivered into S3 by Amazon two or three times a day. Um, but it's really important for us that we, we consume that and process it and run our business rules against it as quickly as possible. And there's sort of two, two vectors uh, upon which that data gets used. One is to run our, our cost optimization programs here. So we've got some numbers up there. Uh, of, of sort of the scale we're talking about. But uh, if you're familiar with reserved instances, uh, which you can use to lower the cost of, of running things like a Redshift node or an EC2 instance, uh, we manage in the hundreds of millions of dollars in our eyes. 
uh, and the result of that investment is saving the company hundreds of thousands a day. So it's, a, it's, it's pretty big stakes, uh, even for a company of our size, that's uh, nothing to sneeze at. And Redshift is the platform that we use to, again, ingest the bill, lots of other smaller data sources to give us the confidence we need uh, to make the decisions to, to handle these things right. Um, the other sort of uh, channel of consumption of this data uh, goes out to everybody inside Intuit. Intuit has about an 8,000 person company. Uh, more than half of those are developers. Uh, and in contrast with the old uh, data center ways, uh, things are very dynamic in AWS. People are spinning things up, uh, experimenting with new services or new architectures all the time. And they need to know, how much is this costing me? And is, do, do I have the money for this? And um, you know, in the old days, it might have been okay to, to wait to the end of the month and have finance send you what your hosting bill was going to be. But that, that no longer works for us with as, as quickly as we're changing and things are moving. So um, the other vector of, of use here is to, uh, again, run all our business rules because uh, the way the bill gets delivered is very different from what we end up charging internal parties. There's a lot of charge back and distribution of shared costs and amortization of all those RIs and things like that that we have to do to, to turn the, the raw bill into the actual number that's going to go into the GL. So we want to get those numbers to people as quickly as possible so that if, if they're in the middle of the month, they can see if they're running hot and they need to take some corrective action to, to get back under their budget. Or, or maybe if they're running cool, maybe they've got a little wiggle room to, to try a new experiment or project that, that they've been wanting to do. Uh, so you know our goals in general are not unlike the goals of any uh, of your, your data warehouse teams out there. Um, you know, One was that. Uh, as we were looking to migrate, we we're still sort of on the early part of that curve uh, on the right there. Uh, we hadn't sort of taken that steep turn upward yet. And we, but we knew that that, cur that turn was coming. So we knew that uh, what we were going to go with had to be able to handle that, had to be able to scale uh, sort of at the, at the magnitudes that Maurer was talking about. Um, the other thing was that, you know, even though we're a big company, uh, we're a pretty small team, actually. and, and uh, Everybody has finite resources. And we wanted to make sure that those resources were deployed you know, for a DevOps team, as much dev as possible and as little ops as possible. Uh, we didn't want people, people spending a lot of time just keeping the lights on and the ship afloat and that kind of stuff. So it was very important that um, there be as little overhead as possible into keeping everything running and going to, to maximize the time and differentiating you know, new capabilities and features and insights. Um, the third there is obviously people want things fast. Um, you know, whether it's a, a, a PD team that's uh, running a load test or an experiment, uh, they want to know how much that costs so they, they can know if that was a, a viable uh, pattern to go with. Um, and also at the same time, our, the cost optimization program, um, there, there's people that are having to make RI purchase and modification decisions. Um, there's those automated routines that we have that, that take actions based on that data. And given the scale that we're at, um, just you know, a few hours of extra freshness in that data can have substantial you know, financial impact to the company. Um, the last one for us, because we're, we're dealing with financial data and you know, the hosting costs of, of running something like a QuickBooks or a TurboTax is a significant part of the sort of P&L picture of these things. Um, we, you know, we, have to, we have to treat everything that we do in our system uh, you know, in, in compliance with SOX. And um, you know, something that makes that uh, I'll just say really easy is, uh, as Mauro was mentioning, all the things they've done to uh, provide all the different security compliances. Uh, th those same sort of auditing and logging features have done a lot to sort of minimize the friction and cost that we incur in maintaining that compliance. Um, so this is a little snapshot of where we were uh, prior to the migration. Uh, you can tell this is real data because the chart's ugly. <laughs> um, but basically, the, those gray lines you're seeing there are the size of a batch. And so our, our cur, our bill, at the beginning of the month, it would be small. But because Amazon restates the whole month each time you get it, towards the end of the month, it gets really, really big. So uh, this was the pattern we were seeing with our on-premise data warehouse. Um, this was a, a typical all-in-one type warehouse. Um, but we had implemented best practices. We had the best uh, storage we could get in our data center. We were using columnar storage for our big fact tables. Um, we had done things pretty well. And what we saw was performance was steady, um, which was good, but it wasn't, it wasn't where we wanted it to be. So um, you know, the scale here, we're looking at the gray bars going up to maybe 600 or so, which is about 600 million rows of data. And the red line is the duration in minutes, which was matching pretty much one to one. So a 600 million row batch was taking 600 minutes or 10 hours, which wasn't so good, because we knew things were going to get two, three, four times as big. And, 
taking two days to run your ETL just wasn't, wasn't going to work for us. So while the performance was steady, and we might have been able to you know, throw some more hardware at it in the data center, what we had wasn't bad. Um, it just, like any data center, it takes time to do that, and there's cost, and we didn't, we didn't like that so much. So this is sort of the same metrics um, against our Redshift system. We were able to deploy the same ETL logging that we had used on-prem in Redshift. Um, and so this is the 12 months that followed our migration. So uh, a few things to call out here. The first is, um, if we look at the first few months, uh, remember the, the yellow orangish line was kind of steady at one. What we saw here in Redshift was, you know, it's going up to 20. And the other thing is that it's not flat. As the, as the volume of data grows each month, as the bill got bigger and bigger towards the end, the performance of Redshift was actually increasing. So the red line, well, it wiggles some, it's more steady. And what, so basically what that was telling us that, hey, Redshift's performance is just sort of increasing the more data you throw at it. It didn't seem to care whether it was doing a billion rows or 500 million or 50 million. It was basically taking about the same amount of time no matter what the data scale was. Um, a few months in, we, we, in February this year, we migrated, we were running the DC1 uh, 8x large nodes. We migrated to DC2. Uh, and thanks to the Redshift team, we, we had a number of, D, we had bought RIs for our DC1 infrastructure and they allowed us to, to upgrade to DC2 at no cost, thank you. Um, but right, with no other changes, no other stuff other than, you know, click, click resize, come back from lunch or whatever, and um, everything's twice as fast. So, um, you know, we went from hitting a peak of about 20 million rows a minute to 40 million with just that change. Um, that we were in good shape there for a while. Um, and then something interesting happened uh, in April, uh, no less, uh, where our, those gray hills started getting a lot bigger. And that was uh, some things we had done, some uh, capabilities we'd implemented in the cloud that, that really like massively increased pretty much overnight the size of our bill. Um, but what we saw was, you know, Redshift took it like a champ. Um, the, the data volume basically doubled, tripled right there. Um, and while the batch duration did increase a little bit, it wasn't that bad. I mean, we're talking, you know, 40, 50 minutes, whereas before maybe it was 20 or 30. So um, still very acceptable performance, uh, given that just, just the huge load of data we'd thrown at it. Um, a few months later in July, we scaled the cluster, and that wasn't because we were necessarily dissatisfied with the performance, um, but we needed a little bit more space. Uh, we were getting low in space, and so we, we scaled it, uh, and that, that sort of, gives you more performance as well, um, brought the, the batch durations back down. And, and now we're, you know, this, this is actually a couple months old now, but, um, you know, as of the last couple months in this graph, we were handling, your performance was exceeding 100 million rows a minute, um, whereas before, again, remember, our on-prem system was one. And that, again, that's with no um, performance tuning or refactoring of our code or, or anything to try to eke out more performance. It's the same sort of basic code um, just working a whole lot better as we scaled up our system. So how do, how do we make that work, and um, you know, how does Redshift uh, play a part in it? So this is a, an architecty kind of picture here, but the way to think about it is these are we think about these are all the things that have to happen in in getting the data, processing it, and then making it consumable to folks. So um, at the top left there, in this sort of stage zone, we have a demarcation point, a place where we a common place where we can put data, so we can start to work against it. Uh, we have an ingestion processing platform that uh, takes that data and puts it into our main data platform. And um, in our case, for our, for our group, we happen to be a lot of like old school, you know, SQL kind of people. That was really our wheelhouse. And so we tended to take an ELT type approach. So instead of uh, doing a lot of work with the data outside of our platform, uh, our preference was to just leave it, leave it untouched, uh, keep all of it, bring it into the platform, and then we could, we could deploy our wheelhouse of SQL skills against it to do whatever it was we needed to do. So uh, it gets into the data platform. We have a processing platform once it's in there, once it's staged, once it's in SQL, and we know how to operate against it. Um, let's, do, let's go to town. Let's do what we need to do. Uh, underneath those things, we have an orchestration layer because um, you know, some things maybe need to be done hourly or daily. Uh, other things may be on arrival of fresh data what have you, and you know, sequences and dependencies and things are managed by an orchestration layer. Uh, and then on the output side, the consumption, uh, we have a number of places things go. Um, we have a number of downstream sort of generic consumers. We have a way of serving them. Uh, we have a growing contingent of AIML uh, data science folks, and I'll talk a little bit more about, about them later. Um, we also wrote a number of APIs. Um, 
where, where people wanted to get programmatic access to this data and where it was sufficiently summarized and uh, could, just sort of, could be served by a short query. Uh, we have uh, a number of APIs exposing our data. But most of the usage for us uh, is through the visualization and business intelligence layer. So we've got lots and lots of really rich dashboards and reports and things uh, that allow uh, the cost optimization program to run to make its uh, decisions effectively, but also every PD team, every PD manager, you know, director VP and up uh, has basically near real-time insight into their true allocated costs, and so they can make the business choices they need to make uh, to stay in their, where they need to be. So these are, the, these are the Amazon services and technologies we deployed to deliver those capabilities. So um, S3, of course, there is our, is our demarcation point. So uh, we found with all of our various sources, uh, it was, it's generally been very easy to get people to put stuff in a bucket. Um, the, the Cur, our main data source, kind of arrives there naturally from Amazon. Um, Redshift, of course, is our data platform, and that's what we're here to talk about. For the, for the workers, for the ingestion and the sort of post-ingestion processing, we deploy um, either a Lambda or EC2. And so we use Lambda everywhere we can, and this is getting back to the uh, maximizing dev and minimizing the ops. We didn't want to, an objective of this was to not have any persistent uh, compute stuff that we had to care and feed for. Uh, we don't want to have to do patching and restacking and all, like, it's just, we don't want to have to worry about that stuff. So uh, Lambda now can run for 15 minutes. Uh, for the longest time it was five minutes, but anything that we feel comfortably, you know, will always run uh, in less than five minutes, we'll use a Lambda. Uh, but we can basically run our same code stack on an EC2 if it's, if we're staging that big curve, or if it's something we, we think might, might take longer than a, a Lambda lifespan. Um, for the orchestration layer, um, we use step functions if, there, if we've got maybe a number of lambdas that need to be coordinated. Um, SNS is something that lets us know when you know, something just arrived in S3 bucket, we want to process it right away. So like with the cur, we don't want to wait until nighttime to run it. We want to, we want to start running things right away when one arrives. Um, RDS sort of helps uh, everything maintain state. And we use CloudWatch for things that need to be scheduled. Um, on the output side, uh, a lot of what we do is after we've transformed and made the data consumable, it goes back to S3 where it actually flows into, into its broader data lake. So this isn't kind of the whole world of things. This is just a kind of a stop on the way for the data um, where it gets heavy use, but it gets used in other ways uh, by other consumers uh, pulling from S3. Our data science group has um, arrived on SageMaker as their platform of choice. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more later about the things they're doing. Um, but they connect directly to Redshift and run their queries and things. Uh, Lambda, again, we use uh, on the output side to provide for those APIs. So as, if you've ever done that, it's very, very simple and straightforward to uh, put together an API on Lambda. And then on the visualization BI side, uh, ClickView, Tableau, a little bit of QuickSight. So uh, just about any tool will work there. These are the ones we happen to have running and into it. Uh, so a few things we learned. Uh, again, keeping in mind that we were coming from uh, one of these all-in-one, you know, uh, Oracle SQL type uh, environments and skill sets as well. Um, we were a little bit intimidated at first because with these platforms, you, there's a lot you get out of the box. Um, you don't just get a database, you get uh, job orchestration, you get you know, the SQL Server agent or Oracle Enterprise Manager. You get a really rich tool set that enables you to do a lot right away, sort of generally within the same GUI, and it feels all sort of nice and comfortable. Um, but, and so if you, if you look at just Redshift by itself it held against one of these all-in-one solutions, it might seem like, ooh, there's some stuff missing here. But what we learned is that's really not the right way to look at it. What you have to do is look at the broader Amazon ecosystem. Um, things like Lambda, things like S3 that, that we deployed to, to basically make up for those what you might think of as missing but aren't really uh, features in Redshift. Um, you know, a lot, of the, a lot of times, you know, the, the, the sort of uh, scalability or elasticity constraints that you might have you know, run, running, running one of these uh, databases can also apply maybe to uh, part of your supporting applications where uh, maybe you've got a program that, that works the CPU really hard. It's not maybe not working the database that hard, but it's, it's working some other part of your database systems hard. Um, those things have all the same scaling challenges in these all-in-one solutions that the database does. And so um, by moving to these native services in Amazon, uh, we, we basically experienced like the ultimate elasticity and scalability uh, and flexibility to uh, scale those things up and down, work them as hard as they need uh, without having to worry about uh, Redshift or you know, the database uh, going in at the same time. 
another thing we learned, again, sort of on a similar vein, is when you look at Redshift and you hold it up against uh, something like uh, the latest version of Postgres uh, or Oracle or Microsoft SQL, um, as, purely as an RDBMS, there's some things that you might be concerned, oh, it's missing function X or Y or Z. Uh, and there were a few things that we were doing uh, in our on-prem thing where uh, we had we had some uh, programmatic things that were doing lots of small writes and they were running loops and uh, things just that weren't maybe a good fit for Redshift. Uh, and so instead of trying to make Redshift do something it's not really good at or meant to do, um, we used a, a PostgreSQL RDS instance. And uh, Redshift and Postgres, uh, because they share the same sort of code roots as they both came from Postgres, uh, they work really well together. There's a feature called dblink that you can use. It's uh, a little bit analogous to, uh, say, a linked server, if you're familiar with that, and, and SQL Server. Uh, but it makes it very easy to move data between Redshift and RDS. Uh, it's very simple. And uh, what that allowed us to do was to use uh, Postgres to do this program we had, um, pull the data from Redshift, do the work it needed to do, get it back into Redshift. It was all very seamless, and it, it, kept, it kept us in our SQL wheelhouse, which we liked. Um, the other thing, too, you know, I've got stored procedure support here on the slide, but um, if you guys have been watching, uh, apparently stored procedure support is coming soon for Redshift. So the, the set of features that, um, that Redshift can't do, that Postgres can do, it seems to be getting smaller all the time. Uh, another one that for us was, uh, it's kind of silly, uh, was uh, our visualization layers expected cam uh, columns in camel case. And at the time we moved, Redshift didn't do that. Um, so that was another thing we used uh, RDS for, but since then uh, Redshift supports camel case uh, column name outputs. So uh, again, just uh, using the right tool for the right job here with, with RDS. Um, a few things we're excited to, to get going on next, and this kind of ties into some of the new uh, features Mauer was talking about. Uh, the first is how we intend to use con concurrency scaling. So um, I mentioned I talked about the data scientists, the AIML uh, team. So um, you know our cost optimization program has done a really good job of, of getting all the low-hanging fruit off the tree, um, but we're always looking for ways we can maybe squeeze a little more juice out of those fruits. Uh, and so part of that is going to be uh, deploying AIML capabilities against our cost and usage data to help us make even better decisions around RA management, uh, other cost optimization strategies. And again, at our scale, just getting one or 2% better uh, pays huge dividends. So um, you know, something that we're, we're keen to use this for is as that popu analyst population grows, uh, we don't want their usage to impact the, our key ETL processes, uh, things that are, you're loading the dashboards and, and staging or uh, you know, feeding our data. Um, so with, through concurrency scaling, we're anticipating that uh, by turning it on, opting into it, uh, we're going to be able to let our ETL jobs continue to run right when the data comes in. We can't wait till the night um, you know, to run ETL. It's got to run right when the data gets there. Um, that we'll be able to do that, have those things still run just as performant as they do today, while still providing for a consistent and, and usable experience for our growing analyst population. Because today, most of our consumption is through the visualization layers. The other thing um, is, is kind of using three features that Maurer talked about in concert to help us manage uh, the sort of life cycle of our data. So uh, like most data warehouses, um, our, our main fact tables and things are sorted based on date. Uh, it's our bill, so what, what day and what hour did we incur that cost? Um, and we tend to be most interested in things that are, have happened most recently, the current month, maybe the current quarter or year. Uh, but things that happened three years ago, while we might need to keep that or want to keep it to show long-term trending, um, it's not accessed as, as frequently, and certainly when it does get accessed, it's not as urgent generally. So uh, the combination of the unload to parquet feature, uh, Redshift Spectrum, which has been out for a while, and the Spectrum Request Accelerator, we've, uh, the Redshift team's been nice enough to let us uh, start using this. And what we found is, um, you know, by using Spectrum to, to, to bind uh, the, the data that's been unloaded to Parquet and S3 in combination with the request accelerator, like you almost don't notice the data is not there in Redshift. Um, it's not quite as fast. Um, but for data that's actually being served by that request accelerator, it's very, very close. Uh, and we're, again, we're using the DC nodes with the fast SSDs and things. Um, so we're really happy with uh, the performance and just the sort of simplicity of the solution uh, in allowing you know, all of our sort of higher level views and things are going to be able to not have to change because uh, we'll be able to marry the, the data in S3 with the data, the, the sort of hot important data on the SSDs in our cluster uh, transparently to everything higher up. Um, so, uh, you know, last slide here for me is, uh, 
you know, the benefits and things that we've seen. So we, again, performance and scaling, the ability to handle an explosion in data volume that you saw we had uh, has been super successful. Um, the same architecture is scaled to over seven times the data volume we had at, at the initial migration time with, with no effort, and that seven might be an eight by the time I get home, um, which is, is key. I mean, we, we don't have to go back and rewrite to try to eke out you know, more performance out of our code. It just works. Uh, again, with, uh, you sort of hardware normalize what we've got running there in Amazon now against what we were running on premise. I mean, we're seeing 20, over 20x sort of uh, apples to apples uh, performance. And what that has meant for the business outcomes is, uh, you know, by freeing up people to not have to be caring and feeding for the system, those people are free to develop new features. It's the same set of people we had uh, developing new views and insights and things that were uh, op operationally uh, keeping the system healthy. So by freeing them up to develop new features, uh, we're getting uh, our, our JIRA stories kind of closed faster and out the door faster. Um, also, too, the, just the overall performance has meant that from the time we get fresh data to the time we've got fresh insights for people's eyeballs uh, has been reduced by over 90%. So you saw that you know, we were looking at 10-hour batch run times before, whereas now they're, they're well under an hour. And the other thing, too, is we haven't had any downtime. Um, so those that have operated in uh, the data center environment for you know, something always goes wrong with the network or storage or whatever, um, but we haven't had any unscheduled downtime. We give Redshift its little maintenance window on Saturday morning where they, they do upgrades. If they see something looks maybe suspect with a, a disk or something, they just replace it quietly. You never notice. Um, so they're doing a lot for you. And, and the things Mauer talked about with, with further simplifying some, uh, things for your life, the, the automated uh, vacuuming, uh, analyzing of your tables, and the WLM management, um, we're, we're looking forward to just being able to not have to worry about uh, the little things we wrote to do those things for us, because it'll be doing it for us. Uh, and cost, too, um, because we've got uh, our people focused on uh, you know, developing instead of operating the system. Uh, if you look at sort of like from a TCO kind of perspective, uh, we've actually reduced quite, cost quite a bit. It might be, we might have a slightly higher OPEX spend because of uh, uh, our cluster size and things, but overall, uh, we're getting a lot more value than we did before. So. Um, you know, hopefully, uh, you know, what, I've, what we've shown here is, uh, is helpful for you guys in your migrations or if you've already migrated and you're wondering kind of what to do next. Um, but for us, you know, we're really happy with how things have worked. And, and given what we know about the, the trajectory of, of this data sort of domain, uh, we're really confident that Redshift is going to continue to serve it for a long time to come. Thanks. Thank you, Jason. Thank you for attending. In the previous slide, uh, there are, are basically our email addresses in case you have any questions. Both Jason and myself will stay around to answer any questions, get your feedback. Thank you so much for attending. Safe travels back home, and please fill out the survey. Thank you so much. <laughs>